0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. And when they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you are slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Of honor and glory and blessing you are the God who is worthy of our worship today you are the God that we've gathered here to adore and to sing to you are the God who is worthy of our lives to be offered in total worship today and so God we pray in this place in this room that we are aware That we're not just a group of people gathered in a gymnasium in Brampton, but we join with thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads surrounding the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, knowing that the whole earth is full of his glory. And we participate in that worship today. I pray, Lord, there is no spectating in this room, but there is worship. And as we go into your word today, that you use your word to bring comfort to those who need it, to bring conviction to those who need it, to bring a word of affirmation to those who need it, to direct our lives today. And that in our submission to your truth, in our submission to your word, that you are worshiped, you are glorified, you are honored. That's our prayer today. We may decrease, all of us together, that you would increase. We love you, Jesus Christ. You are the ruler of our lives, and we adore you together now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. If you agree, say amen. 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 Why don't you take a seat? Amen. You can clap. That's good. It's a joy to be here with you. And uh, Marv was so kind, and yesterday, Pastor Ted was so kind, with such a warm welcome. But you got to understand, our church, our staff, we love your church and we love your staff. And we love to get together with them. I love your pastor, Pastor Ted, so much. He is a dear friend of mine, as well as Marv and the rest of the team. We love them so much. And uh, I know that you know how blessed you are to have... Uh, all of these precious, faithful servants of the Lord uh, leading you to follow Jesus Christ. So I'm going to start this morning with a quote. It's on the screen for you. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's uh, paradox of love. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Just think about it for a second. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. In other words, our love for God is expressed through a constant and steady pursuit of what we've already found in him. It's a paradox. We've already found God to be loving. We've found God to be forgiving. We've found God to be merciful. We've found God to be gracious to us. And what the Christian life is, is not just finding all those things in God and sitting still, but the Christian life is finding all those things in God and then pursuing more of him as a result. And the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. And so really the Christian life is a pursuit of God. It's a pursuit of Jesus Christ. All the things that we've known to be true of God, we pursue all the more in him, expressing our love for him and finding ourselves loved by him again in return. So far from an empty form of external religiosity, Christianity is an active, vibrant pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finding your soul satisfaction In him, and I just want to tell you today that wherever you find yourself in the journey of life, Jesus Christ loves you and longs to be sought out by you and longs to be pursued by you so that he can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and mind. So, the title of this morning's message is this Two Ways, Two Ways of Pursuing Christ two ways of pursuing Christ. And if you have a Bible, you can go with me to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can put up your hand, and one of the ushers would love to bring a copy of God's Word to you. John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35 is where we will be this morning, and I pray this message is helpful for you. I pray it's practical for you. I pray it's relevant for your life. I believe it will be because the words of Jesus Christ are always practical and relevant for us. John chapter 6, 25 to 35, this is what it says. It says, When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written... He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34 says, They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's so much happening in this passage of scripture, but the one thing that I want to highlight for you is, in fact, this that there is a kind of pursuing Jesus Christ happening in this passage. There's a kind of pursuing Christ that we see here, and and what we want to do this morning is we want to see what this pursuit of Christ is in this passage, and we want to contrast that with what God says the genuine, authentic pursuit of Jesus Christ needs to look like. So this is where we're going to start, and you can write this down in your notes. There is a way to pursue Christ in our lives that is actually self-serving and therefore unsatisfying. There is a way in our lives to pursue Christ that is actually self-serving and therefore ultimately unsatisfying. You notice again verse 25 to 26. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? See, they're, they're looking for him. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You're looking for me, you're pursuing me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now before we jump in to all that God has for us here, I think it's very important for us to gain a good understanding of the context of John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is like a standalone chapter in the Gospel of John. There are 71 verses in John chapter 6, and every single verse and everything, everything happening in John chapter 6 is pointing to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, what he's come to do, and specifically this what he's come to be for a lost and a dying world. Here's something you have to understand this morning. Jesus didn't just come to do something for you. Jesus came to be something for you. Jesus came to be something for you and for me. So in verses 1 to 15 of John chapter 6, we find the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that. This is important to our passage today with just two fish and five barley loaves. Jesus demonstrates his authority over hunger by multiplying just a little bit of food and feeding over 5,000 people. It was amazing. And then in verses 16 to 21, Jesus is found by his disciples miraculously walking on the water and in the midst of a raging storm towards the disciples in the boat they were in, calming the storm, showing himself to be authoritative over nature and creation itself. And so by the time we get to verse 25, our text today, the crowds who had been following Jesus and witnessing the miracles of Jesus can't get enough of Jesus. By the time we get to verse 25, the the crowds are looking for him, they're seeking him, they're pursuing him, they want to find him. But the tragic thing about what's happening here in John chapter 6 is that the crowds are not looking for Jesus for who Jesus is and what he's come to be for them. The crowds are searching for Jesus, pursuing Jesus, chasing after Jesus for what he can do for them. For what he can give to them. They don't want Jesus. They want what's in Jesus' hands. They don't want the beauty and the glory of Jesus. They want what's in Jesus' hands. And so notice Jesus' response to all of this. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now it's important for us to understand that in the Gospel of John, when he uses the word signs... And he uses the word signs all throughout his gospel. He's talking about something that Jesus has done that points to the reality, the greater reality, of who Jesus is. And so when Jesus says, you're searching for me not because you saw signs, he's highlighting this fact. You're you're looking for me not because you saw what the feeding of the 5,000 really highlighted, which is my glory, my majesty, my power, my sufficiency. You're looking for me because You simply got hung up on the sign itself. See, signs don't exist for themselves. Signs always point somewhere. And the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that pointed to the reality of the sufficiency and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. But the problem that's happening here in John chapter 6 is that the people, the crowds, hundreds and thousands of them, they're really hung up on the sign. They want more of the sign. They they love the sign. They're pursuing Jesus, not because of what the sign shows them about Jesus. They're pursuing Jesus so that they can have more of the sign itself. That's the tragedy of what's happening here in John chapter 6. So Jesus discerns something that no one else ...in that crowd is able to discern. He discerns that they are pursuing him with a self-serving motive. They're pursuing him with a heart that wants what he can give to them... ...rather than what their hearts really need, which is himself. And so on the screen for you, John Piper said this. He said, Jesus did not come into the world mainly uh, to give bread but to be bread. He did not come into the world to be useful, but to be precious. Oh, how many Christians receive him as useful. Or another way to put it is this. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had before you were born again. He came into the world to change your desires so that he is the main one. That is the reason he came. And so there is a way to pursue Jesus Christ that is actually self-serving and therefore ultimately unsatisfying. And this is a word that our hearts need to hear and embrace today, this morning. Because if you're like me, you get lost in this life sometimes. If you're like me, you, you bow down to pray sometimes. But, but the, the nature of your prayer is not so much seeking the face of Jesus Christ and finding all that you need in Jesus Christ. Sometimes you come to the Lord and you have a motive for coming to him. And you say, Jesus, we, we want you to give us this. Jesus, we're seeking you because we want this. Jesus, we're using you as a way to get this. And what we're going to see and what we're going to find is that this kind of pursuit of Christ will always leave you amazingly unsatisfied in your life. This kind of pursuing Christ will always leave you discontented and even disillusioned Because your pursuit of Christ is for something other than that which your soul was designed to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in. So let's just take a moment for for a second here to get really personal. It's easy to come to church and to sit and listen. But let's just get a little personal here. Let me ask a question. Why... Do you pursue Jesus Christ? Just think about it for a second. Why do you pursue Jesus Christ? I'm not better than you. I ask myself that question. Why am I pastoring a church? Why did we plant this thing four years ago? Why am I working so hard in ministry? What's the nature and the purpose of my pursuit of Him? Why are you pursuing Jesus? Why are you here this morning in this church? Why did you come? Why are you part of a small group in this church? Why are you actively serving in this church? Why are you part of an accountability group of some kind? Why are you part of some kind of training that's happening in this church? Why? Can you answer? Some of you may say, I'm not exactly sure um, Jason, I'm not exactly sure uh, what my motive is for pursuing Jesus Christ. Uh, Can you help me, Jason? How can I identify if my pursuit of Jesus Christ is actually self-serving? I I mean, I think I'm pursuing him for him, but but I I don't really know. How can I know? Well, I want to show you three things from the text. I want to show you three marks of a self-serving pursuit of Jesus Christ that no doubt all of us fall into from time to time. But I pray if any of us are finding ourselves in one of these patterns, we can turn away and turn to the pursuit of Christ that God has called us to. Three ways, uh, three marks of a self-serving pursuit of Christ. It's going to be on the screen for you. Uh, Number one is this. The self-serving pursuit of Christ. it, It constantly tests Jesus. Okay? And I want you to be looking for these patterns in your own heart. Notice verses 27 to 30. It says, do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says. Don't go after the the temporary bread. Don't go after that. He, He says, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, listen, then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? It's an absurd question. Let's just think about it for a moment. They've just witnessed Jesus feed over 5,000 people with very limited resources. And when Jesus says, this is the work of God, don't don't look for the bread. Look for the the food that endures to eternal life. Essentially saying, believe in me. They're looking at him in light of the fact that he's just fed 5,000 people. And they say, what exactly do you do, Jesus, that we should believe in you? They say, what what work do you perform that we should look and pin our hopes on you? It's an unusual question. In addition to the fact that he's fed 5,000 people before their eyes... In chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus miraculously turns water into wine. The word would have spread. In chapter 4, it records for us Jesus prophetically telling the Samaritan woman everything about her life upon the first meeting with her. Miraculous. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, Jesus miraculously heals an invalid of 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And the word is spreading about Jesus Christ. That's why there are thousands of people following him. And yet in light of all of this, the crowds, they test Jesus. They're pressing him, and they're pressing him because they want something that he can give to them. They want more bread. And so one mark of a self-serving pursuit of Jesus Christ is this constant testing of Jesus. You ever see that happening in your life? You ever find your heart testing Jesus? Jesus, I'll I'll follow you if you just do this for me. You know, that promotion at work? God, I I want that. If you just give that, if you show me that you can give that to me, then I'll follow you. Then I'll believe in you. I've been a pastor for long enough to see this pattern in the lives of saints in the church appear. I've been a Christian long enough to see this pattern emerge in my own heart. What are you going to do for me, Jesus, so that I pin my hopes on you? The self-serving pursuit of Christ is marked by this, constantly testing Jesus. Secondly, the self-serving pursuit of Christ is marked by this, selfishly demanding from Jesus. Selfishly demanding from Jesus. Notice verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they're doing here, you need to understand, is essentially they're comparing Jesus to Moses. And they're referring to Exodus 16 here, where God so graciously provided manna or bread from heaven for the people of Israel. Remember that in the Old Testament. Well, God was raining down manna, providing for their needs. And so you got to understand what they're doing here. Filled with pride, they quote the scriptures basically saying, Jesus, you fed the multitudes only once. But our fathers in the wilderness, they received manna from heaven day after day after day. Do something more. Do it again. Do it every day for us, Jesus. Then we'll believe in you. Then we'll trust you. Then we'll pin our hopes on you. Then we'll know that you're trustworthy. That's what they're doing. They're not only testing jesus but they're going a step further to selfishly demand from jesus that he do something for them that he show them another sign that he do something more for them and this loved ones is one of the sure marks of the self-serving and unsatisfying pursuit of jesus christ and maybe you're there today maybe you've been there just demanding that Jesus do something for you. Demanding that God show up for you in a way that gives you the thing your heart wants. Now, some of you are wondering maybe, well, what, what, aren't we allowed to pray and ask God for things? Of course, of course. Pray and petition the Lord. But here's the distinction we need to make. When we come to the Lord Jesus in prayer, if we are coming to him, Because we are really worshiping this thing over here, then that's a problem. If we're coming to him saying, Jesus, we're praying to you so that you can give us this thing that we're really worshiping, that's a problem. That's a self-serving pursuit of Christ. Come to worship Jesus and let the context of your prayers be that he is the object of your affection and your worship and the context of your prayer is thy will be done and and I want you above all things. Petition him in the context of that. But guard your hearts, loved ones, guard your hearts from praying to Jesus because you want him to give you the thing that you are really worshiping. It's a promotion at work that I'm pinning my hopes on. I'm not pinning my hopes on Jesus. I'm pinning my hopes on this promotion at work. Because if God gives that to me, then my life will be complete. That's what we think. Or it could be finding a spouse. We talk to a lot of singles, precious godly singles who get hung up on this and they want a spouse so much. And it's sometimes borderline This, it's idolatry. They want this so much that they've just gotten so mad at God that he's not provided the thing that they've really worshiped. That's idolatry. And if you were to get that thing, if you're worshiping that thing, it's not gonna meet the deepest needs of your heart because your heart was not designed to be fulfilled by a job promotion or a spouse or having children or a new house or a new car. Or a good reputation. Your heart is not made that way. You're not created that way. You're not designed to find joy and fulfillment in that. And so a self-serving pursuit of Christ, it's constantly testing Jesus. It's selfishly demanding from Jesus. Thirdly, a self-serving pursuit of Christ it foolishly looks past Jesus. It foolishly looks past Jesus. Notice verses 32 to 34. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So you have to understand that they're not getting it They're not understanding it. You have to notice the continual focus on the physical, the continual focus on the temporal. They're so hung up on having their physical hunger satisfied that they're completely missing something of much greater significance. When Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ is highlighting two fundamental errors in their thinking and in their theology. Number one, he's highlighting this error. Moses didn't give them the bread from heaven, God did. And they're standing there all self-righteous saying, well Moses gave our fathers bread from heaven every day and Jesus is trying to say, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, it was my father. My father gave you the bread, that's the error number one that he's trying to highlight and rectify. Error number two is this, The bread that came down from heaven in the wilderness, it was temporary bread. It was for temporary satisfaction. It was only a pointer. It was only a type of a better bread that would be coming. Of an eternally satisfying bread that would be coming. Jesus is trying to say to them, you're so hung up on the bread. You're quoting Exodus 16 like it's all about bread. And Jesus is saying... Exodus 16 and the bread that came to your fathers, it's all about me. It's about me. It was foreshadowing the fact that one day God would send the true bread from heaven, not just to satisfy physical hunger, but to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart and satisfy the spiritual hungering of humankind. And so, what they're doing here is they're looking at Jesus, and it's like they take Jesus. Um, And they they pull him close to them. They put their arm around Jesus and say, Jesus, listen, let's talk about this. We, We like you, okay? You're a good guy. And see that bread over there? That's what we really want. Would you just give us the bread? See what they're doing? They're looking past Jesus towards something temporal, towards something physical that they think they need will satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. When all the while, the one who can meet the deepest needs of their heart is standing before them in the person of Jesus Christ. They are foolishly looking past him. They're looking past him towards something temporal, towards something physical that they think they need. They're fixated on it. Are you foolishly looking past Jesus in your life? I mean, you come to church, and it's so easy for us to do this. We come to church, we're engaged in small groups, we're doing all the stuff that we're supposed to do. and, and, and so, But sometimes our, our hearts can get mixed up. You know, the hymn writer says that we're, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Do you feel it? I feel it sometimes. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And sometimes we get into this pattern of... Testing Jesus because we fixated on something temporal. of Selfishly demanding, are you going to give this to me? And then foolishly looking past him for the thing that we fixated on. Here's a question for you. Is there something physical or temporal in your life that in this season you have fixated on? That you are pinning your hopes on? That you want that thing. And your prayer life has not been about the worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. Your prayer life has been about using Jesus as this cosmic genie. You just rub him and he's got to give you that thing that you're fixated on. It happens to me sometimes. Did you know that, that even in good things, in good pursuits, we can get mixed up. Even in serving God. Even in ministry. Even in pastoring a church. If my goal is that Jesus, you give me this type of fruitfulness here. That's what I want. That's what I really worship. Then I'm, I'm misguided. If my goal is that God would give me some kind of blessing in my ministry and I begun to worship that rather than worship him, then I'm misguided. What is it for you? What is it for you that you've fixated on? And you've foolishly looked past Jesus for some people look past Jesus towards their careers. Some people look past Jesus towards uh, finding a spouse or their own spouse. Some people look past Jesus towards having children. Some people look past Jesus towards fun. Some people look past Jesus towards technology. What is the thing that tempts you to look past Jesus then identify that thing maybe write down that thing and just repent of the pursuit of that thing and find loved ones find your heart find your life embraced by Jesus himself this is not a moment to feel guilty the Bible tells us so beautifully in Romans 8 1 there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ And so, if you find yourself misguided today, as I do so often in my life, I know and I love that the gospel says there's a savior. Jesus Christ and by his blood he has made a way for me to approach the throne of grace boldly to find mercy and help in my time of need. This is not a moment to feel guilty. If you find your heart chasing other things, this is a moment of confession and repentance. This is a moment to find Jesus Christ with his arms open wide. This is a moment to find Jesus Christ saying, I died for you, I shed my blood for you so that you can come to the throne of grace so that in this moment you can find mercy and you can find help in your time of need and let let the mercy of God come upon your life like a waterfall. That's what this moment can be for you. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient one that we often look past so very often. Now, there's a beautiful couple in our church named Justin and Sally. They're a very precious couple. They've been following Jesus Christ for a long time now. And been serving him and every church they've ever been part of, they were just key leaders and serving the Lord. And, and they got married many years ago and they discovered early on in their marriage that uh, they were having trouble conceiving children. And the thing is, it was a deep desire in their hearts to be parents, such a deep desire. And so over 10 years of fertility treatments, 10 years of prayer, 10 years of trying everything, 10 years of disappointments, Sally got pregnant once and it ended quickly in a devastating miscarriage. It's just, this was a hard, hard thing for them. Over 10 years of this. And finally they realized that this was something perhaps they had to lay down and their hearts became open to of the possibility of adoption and so they began the process to learn and do the classes and figure out maybe that how they can adopt a child. And, and one of the deep desires that they were bringing to the Lord was that perhaps God would give them a newborn baby to adopt. Now, as they began the process, the adoption agencies told them hey, it's, it's highly unlikely, you probably won't get a newborn baby, that's like next to impossible, uh, but you know, you, we'll try and we'll, we'll see how this thing goes. So sure enough, they got a phone call one day, and that thing that they were told was impossible actually Was brought to them. And there was a young girl who uh, got pregnant unexpectedly and she wanted to put up her baby for adoption. She found Justin and Sally's profile and she said, I want this couple here to adopt my baby girl when the baby's born. This girl's pregnant. And so this was answered prayer for them. And Justin and Sally rejoiced. And when the day came for the little baby girl to be born, Justin and Sally actually went to the hospital and took the baby right from the mother. And it was a glorious thing. They named the little girl. They clothed the little girl. They bonded with the little girl. They cared for the little girl. For five days, they did that. I remember receiving the phone call from Justin and Sally and uh, I couldn't make much of what they were saying. I was on speakerphone, and it was very fuzzy what they were saying but I could make out that they were sobbing and weeping and crying uncontrollably and these words were the words that I could make out. Something to the effect of they're, they're taking her away Jason. They're, they're taking her away from us. They're, they're taking her away. And so I'm told that in every adoption process there's a A 30-day window that allows the birth parents to change their mind. And that's exactly what happened in Justin and Sally's case. So years and years of disappointment and praying and confusion and crying and trying and miscarriage. Years of that culminates in this beautiful newborn baby answered prayers. And they're holding this baby like, God, you've given this to us. And now the baby is gone. And so if you can imagine the grief and the pain and Justin and Sally got in their car, they packed the formula, they packed the clothing, they packed all the toys that had been given to them, all the things that had been gifted to them, they packed it all into the car. They packed the little baby girl into the car and drove her to a place where they would drop her off and never see her again. Grief, pain. Sorrow. It's an understatement. Justin tells me he was so broken. They were so broken. They'd never experienced anything, any kind of brokenness like this in their whole lives. Justin tells me he became so angry. Now he's a seasoned believer in Jesus Christ, but he tells me he became so angry with God that he couldn't read his Bible. He couldn't pray anymore. He would just fall to the kitchen floor and pound the floor, say, Why, God, why did you provide? And then take this baby away. He was so angry. Couldn't make sense of this. Sometimes things happen like this in our lives that we can't make sense of. A lot of time had passed, and they continued to grieve. And Justin began to realize and sense that God had not left them. He began to be awakened again to the reality that God was with them. God had not left them. He started reading the Bible again. He started praying again. What he describes to me is that he was overwhelmed, he and his wife together, with a sense of peace that they could not describe and only had to attribute to God. The the grief didn't go away. The pain didn't go away. But they were overwhelmed with this sense of peace that came over them, that, that God was with them. Talking to Justin about this situation, he tells me, Jason, we experienced the love of Jesus in a brand new way. We've been Christians for so many years, and in a new way we knew the love of Jesus Christ. We've been Christians for so many years, we in a new way we experienced the comfort of Jesus Christ. We've been Christians for so many years and had yet to experience what it meant that Jesus Christ was enough for us. Again, the pain didn't go away. The grief didn't go away. But in drawing near to God, they experienced, he tells me, the relationship with God was like, in his words, was like brand new. And they experienced for the first time what it means that when you're in the darkest moment of your life and your worst nightmare has happened to you, that we can say, Jesus is enough for me. That he is bread for our souls. That he is bread for our hearts. And that's something, loved ones, that I wonder in the church in North America. I wonder if people that fill churches in North America can say that sincerely. I wonder so often in my own private times with the Lord, can I say that, Lord? I I read about missionaries who have lost everything. I read about Christians who have lost everything and and who are able to turn and say, Lord, you are bread for my soul. You are all that I need. You are enough for me. You are the one that I look to and pursue. Not to give me this, but, but it's you that I want. It's you that I need. And I wonder to myself so often, do I really believe that? I'm asking you the question, do you really believe that today? Because it's so easy to chase Jesus Christ to give us something else. To chase Jesus Christ to give us a daughter. To chase Jesus Christ to give us a spouse. To chase Jesus Christ. All good things, all good things, all noble desires. Nothing wrong with that. But the thing we're facing here in John chapter 6 is that the people didn't want Jesus himself. They wanted what he could give to them. That kind of pursuit, loved ones, leads only to an unsatisfied life because your heart was meant to find its joy and satisfaction in one place, in one place. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a way to pursue Christ that is self-serving, And unsatisfying. I'm going to close with this now. There's a way then to pursue Christ that is truly Christ exalting and therefore life altering. There is a way then to pursue Christ that is truly Christ exalting and life altering. Notice verse 35 of John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the words I am in an absolute sense, equating himself to God. And that's who he is. And that means that Jesus didn't come primarily to give us something. But Jesus came to be something for us. Jesus came to be all that you need. Jesus came to be the source of your strength. Jesus came to be the satisfaction of your soul. Jesus came to be the treasure of your heart. Jesus came to be the most precious relationship of your life. Jesus came to be the one who satisfies you forever. And every single person in the world and in this room is hungering and thirsting for something more. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so profound. It's that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us the hope of having our hunger satisfied and our thirst quenched. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me will never thirst again. He's not talking physically. He's talking spiritually why are so many Christians on a hamster wheel chasing the next thing, finding themselves unsatisfied? Why are so many Christians sitting in churches like this one and find themselves, well, the preacher's always telling me that Jesus is enough. We're singing these songs that Jesus is enough. But why don't I feel that my heart is satisfied? Well, maybe it's because we haven't grabbed onto this promise that Jesus is enough for me, therefore I pursue him supremely and not the other things of this life. That means that the things of this life that have captivated our attention and our affection, that means the idols of this world that are calling our name all the time, that means when Twitter and Facebook and Instagram is calling your name first thing in the morning, you smash those idols because those are the things that are leading you to an unsatisfied life. You smash those idols and you commit yourself to pursue Jesus Christ, the one who says, you will never hunger with me. You'll never thirst with me. You come to me and I meet the deepest needs of your heart and you are satisfied forever. Is there anyone in the room willing to smash the idols of their lives today? Is there anyone in this room willing to commit themselves to a daily Earnest pursuit of Jesus Christ that says, Lord, I want to delight in you. I want to seek your face and not necessarily what's in your hand. I want to be a man or a woman of prayer. I want to be a man or a woman of the word of God. I want all that you have for me, Lord. I, I want you to feed my soul. I, I want you to show me that how often I chase things that don't satisfy. I want you to show it to me when I'm blind. And I want to smash those things. And I want to find my joy in you. Is there anyone in the room that will say that, will, that will pray that? If there's anyone in the room that will pray that, Jesus will say to you, then you will never hunger. You will never thirst. You will find all that you need in me. And maybe there's even someone in the room that needs to say that for the very first time because you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been chasing all kinds of things, but today you're confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ as sufficient Savior. Now you have a sin problem just like me. We all have a sin problem that separates us from God and that and, and the gospel says that Jesus Christ The perfect substitute comes to die on the cross in my place for my sin so that I don't be punished for my sin. He's punished in my place. He takes my punishment. He gives me his righteousness. And if I would believe and trust in him, he would forgive me of my sin, wash my heart clean, and welcome me into his great eternal kingdom where there is joy and pleasures forevermore. Maybe you have to come to Jesus for the first time today. Church attendance doesn't save you. Belonging to a family that's Christian doesn't save you. You need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. So I want you to bow your heads with me right now. And I'm going to pray for you. Two things I'm going to pray. First is this. Lord Jesus, if there's even one in this room today that does not know you as Savior, if there's even one... We pray that by your sovereign hand you would save. You'd bring an awareness of our sin, an awareness of the beauty and glory of the cross, and let there be a great exchange in the heart of someone today where you have paid the price for their sin and they receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do that, Lord. Bring repentance. Bring salvation. Bring faith. And Lord, I pray for those that are in this room today that are saved by your grace, hearts regenerated, and yet find that they're so often prone to wander. And perhaps in this room today, some have wandered, they've wandered towards the idols of this world, and they haven't even been made aware of it until this moment. I pray, Lord, you would lead us to confession of that, repentance of that. Enjoy in this reality that there is one who will satisfy my hunger and my thirst. There is one. I want him. I long for him. Lord Jesus, let that be our prayers. That we want you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.